begin with the word of prayer. Thank you, Jesus, for giving us this time of worship, time to spend with you, time to just stop and, and let you know what's on our heart and how we love you and, and how we give you glory. God, I pray that today as we get into your word that you would help us, Lord, that you would help us not to be overtaken, Lord, even by our own failure, but that we would focus on loving you, on depending on you more, and to understand what it really means, Lord, that you have forgiven us, Lord. And so, God, speak to our hearts directly. Lord, reassure us this morning. Help us understand the deep truths of your word. And I pray for your Holy Spirit to anoint this time and to be here with us right now. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Hey, I came across some past conceptions that have become today's reality. Let me explain. In 1909 now, let me underline that, 1909, Nikola Tesla, he was like the right-hand man, this engineer of Thomas Edison. You know what he said in 1909? He wrote, it will soon be possible to transmit wireless messages all over the world so simply that any individual can carry and operate his own apparatus. Now, isn't that crazy? This is 1909. I, I kind of wonder what the, this apparatus, he said, looked like in his mind. But isn't it amazing today? We can carry our phones and text anyone in the world today from our smartphones. Matter of fact, Pastor Tommy in Okinawa was texting me last night. I was like, oh, I'm asleep. No, but isn't that amazing, right? Listen to this. In 1900, John Watson, a civil engineer, he looked ahead by writing this. Wireless telephone and telegraph circuits will span the world. A husband in the middle of the Atlantic will be able to converse with his wife sitting in her bedroom in Chicago. Well, what he envisioned, what he saw has come true, right, today with our modern-day wireless cell phones. How about this now? One more thing. In 1967, a pioneer company in electronics called Philco, that was the name of the company, they put out actually this short film depicting what will come to pass 33 years from when they made this film, 1967. And this film was called Shopping in 1999. Now listen, this film showed a woman sitting at a console in her home that was electronically connected to the department store. She pages through pictures of items to buy on the screen. And then when she finds them, she presses a button on a box underneath the screen, and she just buys the item just like that. Then the bank computer, the film shows, debits the money from the person's account, and it pays the store. All the receipts and accounting documentation can also be seen on the screen. And it's funny, this film like went to the husband who's at work, sees on the console on his screen in his office, kind of seeing what she bought and shaking his head. <laughs> another feature showed this woman being able to switch to another screen on this console by a press of a button and then see a camera that's showing what the kids are doing in the other room. Isn't that amazing? This film now was made in 1967. I think that's amazing. This console depicted 
depicted in this film did not look like what our computers like what we have today but think about it for the 1960s it was amazing what they tried to picture what this machine would be like in 1999 interesting that these old concepts actually became reality today now as we return to our study in the book of hebrews we find that the old system of jewish worship was only a picture of what was to come. It pointed to the reality of Jesus Christ coming and bringing salvation and access to God through His sacrifice on the cross. So the old system, the whole Jewish system, the tabernacle, everything, actually looked ahead to the coming reality of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to see here today in our passage. So I titled our message today, the old picture of the new reality. The old picture of the new reality. Now we're going to be studying Hebrews chapter 9. We finished up chapter 8 last time. We're going to take a look at verses 1 through 14 this morning. Our outline today is this. Number one, the sanctuary. Number two, the sacraments. And number three, the sacrifice. So let's begin here. Number one, the sanctuary. And that's an old system, the old picture that looks to the new reality so the sanctuary number one in our outline take a look with me here now hebrews 9 verse 1 it reads here then indeed even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary we're going to stop there now we begin with these words then indeed now what we see in your bibles here it connects us to what we really ended with last time Last time we saw at the end of chapter 8, and if you peek at verse 13, we saw that the old covenant is now obsolete. Remember, we studied that. It's obsolete because of the new one came into play now and took it over. And that means that the old way of approaching God through the Jewish rituals and sacrifices are no longer needed. For Jesus has made the ultimate sacrifice, right, for our sins. He's the one who paid for it all. So we can now find, we found out last time, lasting forgiveness, true salvation, a relationship with God in what Jesus did in dying on the cross. But that does not mean the old way, the old system was, was all bad. For God himself gave this to the Israelites. For the old tabernacle pointed to the reality of the new tabernacle in heaven where Jesus serves as our high priest. And that was really what we saw last time. So the old system was not all bad for it did point to Jesus Christ. It was a picture, a symbol of what was to come. So that's why the writer goes on here in chapter 9. He goes on to say, then indeed, or you may translate it now even and then he says this first covenant that old system had ordinances it had its regulations it had its rituals and ceremonies and that was given for god, from god for the priest to for, perform they were the writer says here for the divine service or the way to worship the holy god See, it wasn't something that the Jews made up here. God gave it to Moses, and Moses shared it with the people back in the Exodus. It was how they were to worship God in, and the writer says, the earthly sanctuary, the place here on earth to meet with God. And just the fact, notice here in verse 1, he says that it's an earthly 
tabernacle, basically, um, this earthly sanctuary, it really says earthly in that sense that it's temporary. It wasn't to last forever. The writer is saying that after all that he's been saying, all that he said about the old system being obsolete, it doesn't mean that the old system was useless. The idea really here that he's saying in verse 1 is the old system was not worthless or pointless for God, for God gave it to them. He, he instituted this. And God, we know, never does nothing, right, anything that is worthless or pointless. So they were all designed now to really give us a picture of Christ, to point to Jesus Christ. Now, I like what John MacArthur said about this old system. Listen, he wrote, They were ordained of God and give a beautiful, meaningful, detailed picture of the eternal Messiah. And that's it, you guys. This sets up what we're going to see today. What the writer's trying to show. Remember, it's written to the Jewish believers who are what? They're tempted, remember, to go back to their old ways. They're getting pressure from their unsaved Jewish friends and family. But the writer's telling them that, hey, this old way of coming to God was really designed to bring you to Jesus. It was really designed to, to, to make you see that Well, Jesus is the answer to all what the old system lacked when he died upon the cross. The tabernacle with all its rituals and ceremonies, all this, all what the priest did was done in the sanctuary. And that's really the focus in our heading today. The sanctuary, what he's talking about was a picture. It was an illustration. Now later we're going to see the word symbolic in verse 9. And that's what it was. This tabernacle was symbolic. The sanctuary was symbolic to what Jesus did in bringing us this lasting forgiveness and salvation okay so this sets it all up with this in mind the writer continues on now look at verse two for a tabernacle was prepared the first part in which was the lampstand the table and the showbread which is called the sanctuary all right so here the writer begins and he brings up the tabernacle which was you remember that portable tent sanctuary that god had the israelites make while they were traveling in the wilderness that's how they met with the lord as they were going to the promised land and now i i got some pictures for you to see and and you can see overall this is the tabernacle and that's the court and all now the tabernacle itself just the tabernacle was 45 feet long 15 feet wide and 15 feet high that's this portable tent. So inside the tabernacle, the writer says here, the, is the first part. Now the first part takes up about two-thirds of the tabernacle. And this is what is called, at the end of verse 2, the sanctuary. Another name in some other translations say the holy place. So that first part, if you walk into the tabernacle, is the holy place. Now, as soon as you walk in, you will see standing to your left side, you will see the lampstand. And that's a seven-branched menorah. And there's a picture of that too. Understand now, the tabernacle, there was no windows, yeah? Nothing to let light in. The only light was from this menorah, basically. And the priests, they were tasked to continually fill it with olive oil so the light would always be continually lit. Now, this was a reminder to the children of Israel that that God is their perpetual light, that God will continually guide them, and God is their light, the light of truth, the light in the darkness of the world. But 
It also represented more than that. Jesus, when he came, he declared this as he stood by a similar menorah when he lived on this earth. He, he said this in John chapter 8, verse 12. verse 12. He said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of light. So the menorah was actually representing even Jesus, what he would do. Jesus lights the, the, and shines the truth in our dark world. He is the one who can help us navigate through life and navigate through this evil world. And then the question really is, is will you let him? Yeah? Do we let him? Do we follow that light? Well, and then we see this in verse 2. We see after the lampstand on the left, to the right of the room now, is the table, it says. And on that table is the showbread. Now, the table of showbread, the bread that's on, there's 12 loaves that sits on the, the, the table, and it's called the showbread. And the 12 loaves represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, every Sabbath, the showbread is replaced with 12 fresh loaves. The priests would take the old ones, and they would consume them for themselves. Now, this was a reminder to the children of Israel that God will be faithful to provide and to sustain them on their journey. But as we're talking about how this all points to Jesus, it also represented how Jesus is our spiritual sustenance. Because again, Jesus related all this in John 6, 35, in the first part of verse. He said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. And I love that. Are you hungry for God? Are you in need for sustenance? Maybe spiritually you are here today and you're dry and famished, but you know what? Go to Jesus. He is the bread of life. Then the writer goes on and describes, look at verse 3 now, chapter 9. It says, And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all. So there's a second room. Two-thirds was a holy place. Well, behind the veil, a second veil, the first veil was really the entrance to the tabernacle. But behind the second veil was this other room. And, he, and, and that is called the holiest of all. Or it's called the most holy place. Or I term it, that it's also called the holiest of holies. This second veil, interesting, was like four fingers thick. And it was woven with blue and purple and scarlet thread. And it had figures of, of the cherubim embroiled on it. And it separated the sanctuary or the holy place, with, you know, separated from the holiest of holies. Now it says in verse 4, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded in the tablets of the covenant. So it, though it kind of reads like the golden censer was the inside, it was, it's actually because that was grouped with the ark because the priest always carried the golden censer into that holiest of holies. But it was actually probably outside with the the ark of the censer or, or or the altar of this the the um not censer the incense altar of incense right in front of the curtain was the uh, altar of incense and the golden censer was carried used to take coals to fill that and they put incense in there and that would um, create this incense smoke that would go rise up to the ceiling 
Now all this, the golden censer and the incense burning in there and the altar of incense that was in front of the curtain, this was a reminder to the children of Israel for them to lift up their prayers to God and that God hears their prayers. And that's what the smoke, the, in, the smoke from the incense represented. But it also represented how Jesus hears our every prayer. Listen to what Revelations 5.8 says. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and a gold and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So that's what the incense of smoke represents. I love that. You know, know that God hears your prayers. He longs to hear from you, whether it's praise requests or requests or whatever it is, whether it's confession or intercession, He hears you and He longs to hear you. And you know what? To God, your prayers are like this sweet incense to Him. So don't neglect to pray. Okay, inside the holiest of holies is the Ark of the Covenant now mentioned here. That's a rectangular box, three and three quarters feet long and two and a quarter wide and two and a quarter high. The ark represented the presence of God and his covenant with the people of Israel, his relationship with Israel. Now, it was overlaid all sides with gold and inside now was put in there the, a golden pot that had the manna written here. That's God's daily provision for Israel in the wilderness. It, they kept an example of that in there. Also inside the ark was Aaron's rod, you remember, that budded, which proved that God had chosen Aaron and his line as leaders, as priests of Israel. And inside the ark were the tablets of the covenant. What is that? The Ten Commandments, right? The stone tablets, right, that were written the commandments, the Ten Commandments, and it showed Israel what was right and what was wrong. So in the ark was the manna, a reminder of God's powerful work in sustaining them, providing for them. Also in the ark was Aaron's rod, the reminder, reminder that God set up the leadership, Moses and Aaron. He set up this Levitical system of worship with the priests. And in the ark were the stone tablets reminding Israel of God's law and requirement, making it clear what was expected of them. Now, I was thinking about that how the commandments made it super clear to the Israelites what's right and what's wrong. You know, the other day I was thinking about, you know, about this, and, and I drove by that sign. Have you seen those signs lately that says, click it or ticket? Yeah. I, who comes up with these sayings, these little, you know, cute little re sayings and all, click it or ticket, you know, that kind of stuff. Well, it's pretty clear what the law is, right? If you're driving without a, the, your seatbelt clicked on, well, then you've broken the law and you will have to pay with a ticket, right? So it's pretty clear. Well, that's what the, th these commandments were. They were showing very clearly what God required. God made it clear to the Israelites what he expected, what he required of them in this old covenant. But what if you sin? What if the nation went against God? What if they did not follow those laws? Well, that's what we see next. Next, look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot speak in detail. So the writer goes on and says, and you guys remember, when we, when we fall, there, there still is a way for atonement. Above the ark, 
basically. Actually, it was on top of the ark. There was these golden cherubim. There are two figures of angels facing each other, and their wings was overshadowing the ark, or they were outstretched over the ark, like pointing to each other as they face each other. And over that area on top, the top of the ark was called the mercy seat. Why is that? Well, this is where the priest would come and sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice for the atonement of the sins of the people. So now the writer goes on here in verse 5 at the end. He's saying, well, these things we cannot speak in detail. What what he's saying, he's he's not going to go on and spend the time. You guys all know the detail. You know that on the mercy seat, the, the priest sprinkles the blood. You know the ritual. You know the ceremony. And that's how we get forgiven for our sins. So the ritual was clearly understood by the children of Israel that the sacrifice of a life, basically saying, was needed for atonement, that an animal sacrifice needed for that atonement. So the mercy seat became the place for atonement for our sins. But it also represented how Jesus is the lamb that was sacrificed for our sins, and he became the mercy seat. Do you remember when Mary came to the empty tomb looking for Jesus? And when she finally looked inside in John 20, 12, what did she see? She saw two angels. And the scripture tells us in verse 12 of John 20 that one angel was sitting at the head of where Jesus had laid and another angel was sitting at the feet where the body had laid. I believe God was making a picture of the ark. The two that those two cherubim on top of the ark. This was like this illustration, a picture for Mary to see that Jesus is now our mercy seat. And now all can come to him and find atonement for sin. So the writer makes this point. Everything in the old tabernacle was designed to point to our Savior Jesus Christ. And that's what we're seeing. That's what I mentioned. Everything now, as he describes the tabernacle, the old tabernacle was designed to point, our sa- point to our Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, I was thinking about this. Um, many of you say, you know, I'm more of a visual person. You know, I like the pictures, you know, rather than reading the words and sentences. And I seem to understand things more when I, I see it visually. And, and I agree. I think pictures do really help. Uh, as I was studying, as I was looking at my phone and, and on my screen, on my iPhone, we, there's icons, right? And it really helps for our apps that we use. There's, there's a, a music note, you know, one of the, 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 the icons, and it's for my iTunes, my music player. Or there's a, 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 a telephone handset on my phone app, right, that, where I can call someone. Or there's a quote little bubble on my messaging app for texting. And guess what's on my Bible app? Well, it's a picture of an open book with a cross on the spline. Basically, it's a Bible. So it's easier to know what these things do but with the picture that is on there, and you just push it. Now, the icon, or click on it, the icon is only a picture, though. As you tap on it, it only leads you, right, to the actual app that will, say, play the music or will open up the Bible program that's there. But it's connected to that app, the, the code that's behind that. Well, that's what the writer is saying here. What was in the tabernacle was a picture of what Jesus did for us in salvation. The things in the tabernacle, they couldn't fully forgive. Uh, they couldn't fully 
wipe out and cleanse sin lastingly, as we saw last time. But it pointed to the one who would come one day and finally make the way for that. So the Jewish believers were not to look at the tabernacle or even the temple later as what will save them, but it's Jesus Christ Himself. They need to see things in this manner. It's not so much about the tabernacle or those, those things that are inside. It's all about who? Jesus, right? It's about Jesus. Listen, sometimes we don't see things in the way we should see those things. You know how we see things? I'll tell you how. This is how I was thinking. We look at things thinking it's all about me. Yeah? Like we're the center of the world. But it should be about Jesus. Now, sure, don't misunderstand me. Sure, we call out to him and he helps us. Sure, he, he guides us in, into what we should do. Uh, sure, he calls us to serve him. And, and yeah, we're, we're part of all this. And we pray for him, look to him to provide for us and help us in our situations. Or when we're hurting, we're suffering, we ask for his healing touch and help and peace and security. But you know, it's not, all the, it's not always about our gain or, or our betterment or I was thinking uh, saying our but I think about my you know me right it's not about how you will look good or how it will work for you but ultimately it's about God and his glory understand this even in your victories and your successes it's all about God getting the glory not you it's about him when you go through your trials and tribulations, it's not always about what you get out of it or the lessons we learn, and we do. We, we grow through them, but it's about making Jesus stronger in you. It's about His presence more in your life. It's about you maturing more so, so that, you know, you can be a light, so you can, you can go through and be a witness and, and be His vessel and tool. Do you understand what I'm saying here? It's so God's name will be glorified in you, in your understanding even. It's so that Jesus will be known to others. So they would be saved and see the same thing. It's about Jesus, not about us. It's about Jesus, not about me. Ultimately, it's about God's glory, not about so much my success. It's about His name being glorified, Jesus being known people being saved. It's about Jesus, not about me. Everything in the old tabernacle was designed to point to our Savior, Jesus. So it is with us. Everything in our life is about Jesus. I was thinking about, there's this old song, and the title is, um, It's All About You, Jesus. And, the, the, and uh, there's some lines in the song that goes like this. It's all about you, Jesus. And all this is for you, for your glory and your fame. It's not about me as if you should do things my way. You alone are God, and I surrender to your ways. That's what it's about, God, guys, that we surrender to Him, to His will. It's not about me. It's not centered around me, but it's about Jesus. And this is the old picture of this new reality of the sanctuary. Let's go on now to number two, the sacraments. The sacraments. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 6 now. 
It says, Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. Okay, so the writer says, when these things, which speaks of what the priests did when they went into that first part, the holy place, when they went in performing their services, like uh, keeping the lampstand burning, uh, the showbread stocked with fresh bread, about putting the coals in the, the golden censer and, and making sure the incense was, was burning. That was their job. This is the sacraments, the ceremony, the rituals that the priests performed. Then the writer adds in verse 7, But into the second part, which is what? The holiest holies. The high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. So another sacrament to say, and that's our heading, the high priest went in to that second part, the holiest holies. And, and he would be the only one. He would alone go. No other priest. And that was once a year. And remember, it's called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And the priest would not enter without blood. He would bring in that, the blood of the sacrifice, which he offered for atonement. He sprinkled it on the mercy seat. And it was not just for the people, but it was for himself also. Interesting, this phrase at the end of verse 7 said uh, uh, that was committed in ignorance, which means that this time, this Yom Kippur, was specifically a day to cover the, the sins done unintentionally. As a commentator said, intentional sins were covered in the daily sacrifices. So anyway, all these regular rituals and ceremonies is what God had wanted. Matter of fact, it's exactly what the Holy Spirit wanted to show, because look at verse 8. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. In other words, even in this, and what the high priest did once a year was designated by the Holy Spirit. It was indicating that the way into the holiest of all, or the holiest of holies, was not open to not just in anyone. It was limited in access. And this was how the first tabernacle was when it was still around. So the idea is this old system, the whole in this old system, the Holy Spirit was showing that it could only take you so far. It was limited. It limited your relationship with God. But it says in verse 9 now, it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices were offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. All right, this is really hard to kind of at first read, understand, but this is what he's saying. All these sacraments, what the priest did, the high priest did, what they did, going in there to sacrifice, they were really symbolic. Now that word means it's an illustration. It's a picture. Matter of fact, the word can be translated a parable of the present time, meaning what Jesus has done, the new covenant, the salvation in Jesus. So he says, for both these gifts and sacrifices, the things that the priests offered to, to God, it could not make him perfect. It could not make any worshiper perfect that is cleansed and forgiven, really, of their guilt in their conscience. So the idea is the rituals were only this external thing, and it didn't help what was going on inside. But the, what the ritual did externally it's saying it was an illustration, a symbol to what Jesus can do internally in freeing us of that guilt. So what the old system was limited in, Jesus can now totally fulfill. 
See, what the priest did could not only take you so far in your relationship with God. Overall, this, the sin may be uh, ritually covered by that offering, but your conscience was never really cleared of the guilt. I mean, you may have been ritually forgiven, but people still struggle with that guilt, with that sin inside. What the external ritual did on the outside, the writer's saying, you know what, Jesus has taken care of on the inside. Jesus can even cleanse the guilt in your conscience. That's the idea. And the writer also adds this in verse 10, that many are concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. The writer is saying this, many are focused on the ceremony, yeah, of that, oh, if I eat this way, I drink only this thing, then, then I'll be okay, then I'll be cleansed. Or, or some are into the ritual washings and other fleshly ordinances, he said, or outward, you know, physical regulations that they, the rituals that they try to do. But it was only really in play until, the writer says, the time of reformation. Reformation means making something uh, straight that was crooked. Well, that really speaks of how Jesus came and he straightened us out. Jesus came and gave us the answer. Jesus came and helped us out to change us from the inside out. So the rituals and ceremonies, they may have helped people try to live right on with maybe outside actions, but the problem really was on the inside of the heart. Jesus came to make that internal change to transform the heart. Listen to how Warren Wiersbe explained this. All of the ceremonies associated with the tabernacle had to do with ceremonial purity, not moral purity. They pertain to the outer man, but that could not change the inner man. So you see, what the ritual did externally, Jesus can now do internally, which is really our point here. The point is that external rituals and ceremonies were really pointing to the change Jesus does internally. The external rituals and ceremonies were pointing to the change Jesus does internally. You know, this month we are having our water baptism uh, and our church picnic. And uh, there is a thinking out there that some feel that the water is something that saves you. That when you do this ritual that this is part of salvation. Well, let me tell you, that's not what it is. It, it's actually an, an outward work of an of, of a, a inward change. It's showing what had gone on. It's a symbol. I was actually this week talking with my, uh, the UPS driver dropped stuff to us the other day, and, and we started talking a little bit, and, and um, he, he was sharing how, you know, I grew up in a Catholic church, and I want to get my kids baptized, and then, you know, I don't know, they, they don't want to do it, but they need to get baptized. And I almost felt like, you know, getting the water baptism was like buying insurance to make sure that they'll be okay with God in this ritual and ceremony. But we know that the sacrament or that ritual does not save. I mean, water may wash your hair, but it does nothing to change you on the inside. Doing the action and the ceremony is not what changes your life and bring you into heaven. What is it? It's believing in Christ. It's believing in what He's done for you. Water baptism 
is an outward show of that inward work. It, it really is a time when you can go before the Lord and, and make that commitment, a public commitment to God and show Him, hey, I'm going to live for you. But it's done after you're saved. Biblically, it is to believe first and then be baptized. It's, it's, it's a showing. Like when you go under the water and come out, it's like you've been cleansed with Christ. You've been made new in Christ. You come out as a new person. But it's because of what Jesus has done first. And that is what the writer is trying to share with the Jews. That the outward rituals, it's, it's not everything. They actually are pointing to that inward work that Jesus does. You know, I, I think in beginning to understand this, we can ask ourselves, does my act, outward actions point to the inward work that Christ has done in me? Yeah? What you do, what, what, does it really show who you really are on the inside? Or is it just the outside? Are they real? Are they genuine? What I mean is, you, you know, when, when you wake up in the morning, you're reading your Bible. Is it because you really want to know God? You really want to hear from Him? Or is it just this outward ritual, well, I got my verses done today? When you're singing songs in worship, when you're here, when you come here and, we're, and the worship is going on and songs are going, are the words you're singing really reflect what's on inside your heart? Or is it just this outward ritual? When you lift your hands to the Lord, is it just for show? Or because or the song says, lift up my hands. Oh, I'm going to lift my hands, you know. Is it just this ritual or does it reflect this inward change that Jesus has done in your life? life the outward rituals of the jewish ceremonies they were they were they were a picture of jesus they're symbolic of jesus it was pointing to jesus and so what we do outwardly does it reflect jesus does it point to jesus search your heart you guys let the lord expose those things that are not really real so we see the old picture of the new reality this was the sanctuary and then the sacraments and then now Number three, our last heading here, the sacrifice, the sacrifice. And this is our last section. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 says this, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Now, Christ came. The writer says here, and filled, really, he filled God's plan to be our high priest in this new covenant, which comes, the writer says, with good things. Now, our better word really is better, better things than the old covenant. I mean, lasting forgiveness, cleansing of conscience, our, our salvation, right? He a life in heaven and eternity, a real relationship with God. And the new way has a new tabernacle, and that is more perfect, he says here, not made with hands. Uh, it's not made like how men or uh, the Jews made the old ta earthly tabernacle. And this new tabernacle is where Jesus serves, as we saw last time. It's not of this creation, right? It's not of this world. Why? We saw last time. It's in heaven, right? Chapter 8. This new tabernacle is heaven. And now Jesus serves there, not by, he writes, with the blood of goats or calves. No, he enters into the most holy place of the heavenly tabernacle. How? With his own blood. He comes into the very throne room of God, just as the, the, the 
the Jewish priests went into the holiest of holies with, with the blood, right, into God's presence there uh, where the ark was. He comes with his own blood that he shed on the cross, which was to purchase our eternal redemption, the word here says. Jesus paid the price for our sin and secured our eternal life in heaven for us. And that was done, I like this term again, once for all. We've seen this before. It didn't need to be done again, like the old system, sacrifices and sacrifices again. But Jesus died once for all, for every sinner in the world. Now, here's the thing. He goes on here in verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and, uh, and goats and the ashes of heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. He's saying, here's the thing. If the sprinkling of blood and the ashes of animals, now the ashes refers to how a, a little bit of the ashes uh, that, were, that they got from the br- burned sacrifice animal was mixed with the water and that became like the ceremonial holy water to cleanse a ceremonially, ritually be cleansed. He says if those things, like the, the, the blood of the animals, the ashes, from the old system, if those things sanctify ceremonially, ritually purifying, just think then, verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So he's saying, just think, how much more now, the blood of Jesus Christ, how much more power, how much more effect, because Jesus, the Son of God, he gave his life, that it, it was even through the eternal spirit, the Holy Spirit strengthened, powered, anointed Jesus to do this. So Holy Spirit was involved here too. And also he himself, Jesus, was a perfect sacrifice, no blemish, without spot, perfect, sinless, we know, right? He's saying, how much more do you think then will Christ's sacrifice be able to cleanse your con- conscience? Of course, it's going to be effective. Of course, it's going to be way better than the old system. It will really take away that guilt, and he says here, from the dead works or sinful deeds. And then he'll change you. And that's what he means. He'll change you from the inside out when he says here at the end of this verse. He'll change you from the inside out to be able to serve the living God, to actually be able to live for God completely. So the idea is this. What Christ did was more than just cleansing you ceremonially. It completely took away the guilt inside. He, then he took away the guilt works. The, I mean, then he took away the dead works and transformed you now into a person who serves God with good works. And all this was possible because of his sacrifice. And it related to the sacrifice, our heading, of Jesus Christ. This is powerful, you guys. This, is, this, is, this should make us really think deeply of what Jesus has done. The Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians 2.21, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. In other words, if the law, the old system in doing things, doing good works, all the ceremony and rituals that you go through, if if that made it possible to live fully for God, then you what? Jesus died needlessly. It was vain. But the old system couldn't accomplish this, so Jesus did come and die on the cross. So now believers who believe in Him, they can really live totally for God. So our last point is this. 
even the deficiency of the old system was used to point to the need for our Savior, Jesus. Even this deficiency that he's bringing up here of the old system was used to point, to show our need for our Savior, Jesus. Understand that's what he's saying there. You know, many years ago, on, uh, many, many years ago on Good Morning America on that show, Albert Speer was interviewed. Now, this man, he was part of Hitler's inner circle. He was the one who, who his leadership, he was in charge of keeping German, German factories functioning during World War II. After the war, Speer was, was also the only one of 24 war criminals tried at Nuremberg that admitted to his guilt. He was sentenced and served 20 years in prison, and he was remorseful all the way to the end of his life. But even prison didn't atone for his sins. After he got out of prison, after those 20 years, he tried to write a book, but the burden still didn't go away. In an interview on this Good Morning America show, Speard sadly said this, I served a sentence of 20 years, and I could say I am a free, or, and I could say I am a free man. My conscience has been cleared by serving the whole time as punishment. But I can't do that. I still carry the burden of what happened to millions of people during Hitler's lifetime. And I can't get rid of that. How sad is that? Charles Colson uh, heard that and he wrote, I wanted to call him up and tell him about Jesus. This is what the writer's talking about as he tries to get the Jews to see how it's only Jesus that can take away that guilt inside. Yeah, the ceremony, the rituals, yeah, we, we, we seem to feel a little purified, but it was only on the outside. Inside, we're really still struggling. But the writer's trying to say, in Jesus, we will be really free. Through his blood, we will we be cleansed of guilt and sin that we're struggling with inside. They need to see their need for Jesus through this. Let me ask you today, are you struggling? Have you been condemning yourself and finding that you cannot do anything to relieve yourself of that regret? Perhaps you've done things to try and cope with that, with the wrong things that you've done, the regret. Perhaps... You know, that's why, well, I'm going to go drink and forget. Yeah? Or you escape into the drug life. Or maybe, maybe you're, you're into like uh, entertainment or video games or something like that. Or maybe, maybe your hobby or sports or something, just so you don't have to deal with that. Perhaps you even cope with and react by isolating yourself from everybody and even hurting people and saying things to keep people away. All because of your guilt. Perhaps, like what the writer is saying here, all that you've done does nothing to help you on the inside. But those things, they cannot do anything. Even go doing your rituals, your yeah, reading, praying, coming to church, yeah? even doing those rituals, they cannot do what Christ can do until you go to Him. But all of that really should bring you to the point where you know i got to go to Jesus. For He's the only one who can free you and heal you. Some of you have been walking with the Lord for years and years. 
but you've never really come to this place to understand how true this is and what Christ can do for you. Well, as we close, I hopefully you can see this now. What God said in this tabernacle and in the old system, it was only temporary, but it, it was designed to show you Jesus. It was designed to depict what Jesus could do, but it was designed for you to go to Jesus. This old system was more or less, like I said before, a fuzzy picture of the, re, re, the real thing, the reality of Jesus. And you know what? I was thinking, this made me think, does who I am, how I live, how I carry myself really represent Christ in my life? Does it really point to Jesus? How I believe, how I see what my guilt and sin and how Christ cleanses that and how He really does that. Can others see Jesus in that too? Let me close with this story. Uh, Keiki Church class of first graders was asked to draw a picture of God. When the teacher went around to see what they drew, he saw one child had depicted God in the form of a brightly colored rainbow. Another had drawn the face of an old man coming out of billowing clouds. And there was a, also another rendition with, which looked a lot like Superman. But the best of all, there was the one proudly displayed by a little girl who told the teacher, I didn't know what God looked like, so I just drew a picture of my grandpa. Well, what a compliment that is to him, right? What a compliment. Well, Grandpa's life seemed to show nothing but Jesus. Isn't that how we should be? Do you understand what the writer means to say now? All that of the Old Testament way was to show the New Testament way of how to be saved, to know God, and that is through Jesus. So that's what we see here, the old picture of the new reality. Let's pray. Jesus, Lord God, may we finally realize the answer to our problem the problem of sin and guilt the answer is you lord you alone can forgive everything that we try and do everything that we try and atone for even our own sins or even run away and escape and try and forget lord you alone can lift that burden of guilt you alone can free us from sin and make us into new creations you alone can restore our fellowship with you because you alone have loved us and died for us. So God, help us to leave the old ways behind and begin to live in the new way. May we leave our past failures and, and, and be forgiven at the cross and rise up into a new life in you. Jesus, only you alone can do that. And we cry out to you right now, Lord. Help us today. Help us to follow you Help us to cultivate and really have a relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. At this time, we're going to be uh, coming into our communion. And uh, as we do, 